Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. I'm kind of getting used to that. Ladies and gentlemen, what, what, who and what can you believe is the uh, question of the, uh, I guess, the century. This from um, LA Observed, which is a website about Los Angeles, regarding the relatively new practice at the Los Angeles Times. Yes, there's still a Los Angeles Times. The relatively new practice there of accepting money from nonprofits to help pay for reporting positions. They quote the Washington Post as saying the United Teachers of Los Angeles and other groups are hap- unhappy that the Times coverage of education, well, that's not a controvert. oh yeah, is underwritten by leading proponents of charter schools in Los Angeles. One of those proponents is Eli Broad's foundation. Eli Broad is a, a billionaire in Los Angeles. And he's made several attempts to buy the Los Angeles Times. Foundations, including the Broad Foundation, will provide $800,000, enough to cover the salaries of two education journalists for at least two years. $200,000 a year for... Nevertheless, the initiative has raised suspicions among teachers' union representatives and others who oppose the charter school thing. They ask, can a news organization take money from vested interests and cover the issues fairly? Well, of course. Why? How could you even... Three of the Times' benefactors, the KNF Baxter Family Foundation, the Wasserman Foundation, and the Eli and Edith Broad Foundation have been major supporters of charter and school privatization efforts. Well, privatization can't hurt you. Uh, that are strongly opposed by teachers' unions. The Broad Foundation developed a proposal which would cost $490 million to create 260 new charter schools, enrolling at least 130,000 students in the L.A. school district. Charters, as you know, are publicly funded but independently operated schools that are usually non-union and exempt from work rules that govern traditional public schools. The uh, story in the Washington Post goes into when the Times has disclosed the backing and when it hasn't. It also notes, and this is the interesting part, ladies and gentlemen, to me, that NPR has used this kind of arrangement to fund reporting positions. You know, if it's good enough for NPR... And speaking of which, uh, I I heard the foofaroo, thank you, about... Oh, by the way, speaking of news organizations, um, the BBC does some things wrong. Ask me about it off the air. But one of the things they do right is uh, record bird sounds, like the eider duck. I shared this with you earlier this year. But it's never a wrong time to hear an eider duck. Now, I um, I listened or became aware of the fufuru surrounding the Republican, the most recent Republican debate, the one on CNBC, before I actually saw the debate. Uh, the fufuru being the Republicans complaining bitterly during the debate and then uh, at great length after to the extent that the Republican National Committee has now severed its relationship with NBC uh, which was supposed to partner in a uh, debate next February. But then I, I watched the, the debate, and uh, yeah, sure, the questions were a little challenging, but um, these, these are people who uh, propose, at least, that they're going to be able to stand up to IS, 
and uh, Bashar Assad and Vladimir Putin. And they can't stand up to Becky Quick and Jim Cramer. Just tell him to put his hands in his pockets. Hello, welcome to the show.
from the edge of America, from the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of bad banks. I don't know if it's a redundancy to say bad banks at this point. You may think it is when I discuss this with you. A federal judge here in the United States this week approved a historic nearly $2 billion settlement of claims that 12 banks colluded to screw around with the credit default swap market. It's not like a swap meet, I'll tell you that. Whatever happened to those? The uh, judge's preliminary stamp of approval came nearly a full month after the deal was announced with Bank of America, Barclays, BNP Paribas, oh, Francais, Citigroup, Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs, HSBC, you know, they're the ones that launder the money for the drug kingpins and the terrorists, J.P. Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, Royal Bank of Scotland, and UBS. Well, that would be really all of the uh, usual suspects. Ten plaintiffs, led by an L.A.-based retirement fund, accused the banks of conspiring to prevent exchange trading of credit default swaps at secret meetings and through telephone and email conversations. The banks were alleged to work only with the single clearinghouse they controlled and imposed rules to restrict trading for their own benefit. Well, they're banks. What do you... Investigations by the U.S. Justice Department and the European Commission ensued after the New York Times blew the lid on the secret meetings, blew the lid off the secret meetings in 2010. The judge rejected an attempt by the banks to dismiss the lawsuit last year, putting that in the nice try department. The banks claimed their behavior was self-interested conduct in reaction to the global financial crisis. Well, if you can't be, if you're a, if you're a bank and you can't be self-interested, who can? The judge was skeptical, though. The financial crisis hardly explains the alleged secret meetings and coordinated actions, she wrote. The, uh, Plaintiffs include people who purchased credit default swaps from or sold credit default swaps to any of the banks between January of 2008 and September of this year. So $2 billion for uh, seven years of, uh, seven and a half years of uh, profitable screwing around, that seems like a pretty good deal. In addition to that payout, the International Swaps and Derivatives Association will create a new licensing subcommittee to approve firms in the business. Boy, that's going to be tough to pass that that muster. Applicants who are uh, denied must be allowed to modify their application (laughs) until they get in. Disputes will be handled by a third party. Ooh, me, me. Can I? I'm a third party and I'm a party. Before the settlement is finalized, the court will hold a fairness hearing next April. Well, April is Fairness Month, isn't it, really, when you stop? The settlement contains the disclaimer that the defendants deny they did anything wrong. They're just paying $2 billion because they care and because they're bad banks. Now, ladies and gentlemen, um, our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia are in the news again. You know, so many ways. A Saudi prince and uh, four others were reportedly arrested in Lebanon this week after authorities found more than two tons of illegal drugs, including cocaine and an amphetamine called Captagon, in crates loaded onto a jet bound for Saudi Arabia. 
if uh, history is any indication, says foreignpolicy.com, the unidentified member of the royal family may get off the hook if he can find his way home. Other members of his sprawling family have previously avoided international accusations of drug smuggling under protection in Riyadh. For example, in 1999, Saudi Prince Nayef bin Sultan bin Fawaz al-Shalan, good night, allegedly smuggled two tons of cocaine from Venezuela to France. He's now believed to be living under legal shelter in Saudi Arabia. Give me shelter! Prince Nayef was accused by France of using his diplomatic status to sneak the drugs onto a jet belonging to the Saudi royal family. He managed to escape his sentencing and was convicted in absentia in 2007. That's the most painful place to be convicted. The U.S. also indicted him with conspiracy to distribute cocaine. In 2010, a leaked WikiLeaks cable described a royal underground party scene in Jeddah that was, quote, thriving and throbbing, unquote, because Saudi officials looked the other way. The dispatch described a Halloween party funded in part by a prince from the Al-Thunayan family, where more than 150 young men and women dressed in costumes and slugged expensive alcohol, which is sold only on the black market in Saudi Arabia. Though not witnessed directly at the event, cocaine and hashish use is common in these social circles, said the cable leaked by WikiLeaks. You know that Saudi Arabia engages in very harsh punishments, but those don't apply to the 15,000 princes and princesses who belong to the royal house of Saud. That's a big house. Man, count the bathrooms. That hasn't stopped Riyadh from pursuing executions of foreigners and non-royal citizens accused of less egregious violation of the country's drug laws. In recent months, for example, Saudi authorities have beheaded, I said beheaded, I said beheaded, a number of people convicted of trafficking drugs, including two Pakistani men, despite calls for reconsideration by human rights groups and the Pakistani government. Captagon pills are at the heart of the conflict in Syria, where their trade reportedly generates millions of dollars in revenue. It helps fuel fighters addicted to the drugs. That's the speed that the uh, soldiers and militiamen use in the Syrian thing. In late September, Prince Majed Abdulaziz Al Saud was arrested after a female worker accused him of abusing her at the home he rented in Beverly Hills. Why, that's just 45 minutes away from where I'm sitting right now. And that's in good traffic. Last week, further details about the abuse emerged after an amended complaint filed by three female home workers accused Prince Majed of intense emotional and sexual abuse. So he gets high marks for intensity. This was a civil lawsuit filed after the L.A. County DA's office declined to file criminal charges against the 29-year-old prince, citing insufficient evidence. According to court documents, the prince threatened to kill the three women, shouting, I am a prince, and I do what I want. You are nobody. Unquote. He actually used the name prince. He didn't say I'm the guy formerly known as a prince. According to the civil complaint, the young royal also performed gay sex acts, which, of course, are punishable by death in Saudi Arabia, which is why he's in Beverly Hills, also the shopping, and seeking to bolster its Persian Gulf allies in the wake of the nuclear deal with Iran. The Obama administration this month notified Congress it plans to sell up to $11.25 billion in warships and related equipment to Saudi Arabia. Why, Why wouldn't you? The uh, lion's share of the sale will be spent on four Lockheed Martin littoral 
That's uh, as in coastal, not as in not figurative. Combat ships, which are designed designed to fight in shallow waters against submarines and other small vessels. Does Iran does Iran have submarines? Just asking. The Saudis will be buying a beefed-up version of the ship called the Multi-Mission Combat Ship, which can fire missiles. At whom? Who, does, who do the Saudis? At whom do the Saudis want to fire missiles? The ship has come to f- under fire from virtually every corner of Washington, including the Defense Department. Questions about its survivability and price have been raised, among other things, according to The Week. Congress has 30 days to disapprove the sale. It's the latest step by President Obama to soothe allies worried about the nuclear deal with Iran. You do know Saudi Arabia has been using uh, airplanes and other equipment bought from somebody around here to um, pummel Yemen in recent weeks. It may have been a Saudi aircraft that destroyed the Doctors Without Borders Hospital in Yemen this week. Destroying Doctors Without Hospital, <laughs> Doctors Without Borders Hospitals, it's a thing. Hey, our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. Hey, more about the bees now. Since the bee colony started declining at alarming rates over the past few decades, some scientists have identified that group of pesticides called neonicotinoids, commonly used on crops as a potential contributor. Now, one team reports in the journal of the American Chemical Society that bees could be getting an unexpected dose of neonics from wildflowers on farms. These results suggest past studies may have underestimated the bees' exposure to neonicotinoids. So how did... Wildflowers, how does that happen? Farmers often sow wildflowers near fields to attract pollinators. The researchers said that could be a missing part of the puzzle. They analyzed pollen samples from plants growing in areas close to farmed fields and from beehives on five farms in Britain. They found that pollen from wildflowers growing in these locations contained neonic residues. 90% of neonicotinoids in the pollen that bees brought back to honeybee hives was from wildflowers, which were not directly treated with the pesticides. They say the neonics are likely leaching through the soil from the treated plants and being taken up by the nearby wildflowers. You know, I wouldn't blame the bees for just turning on us. All right, enough of the Mr. Nice Guy, th- Mr. Nice Bee thing. We're stinging you now. We're just whenever we see you, we're stinging you. So it just hasn't really worked out for the bees so far. Uh, the whole Mr. Nice Bee thing. And now, ladies and gentlemen, yeah, there, there's one more item about our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. I mentioned moments ago that um, they are bombing the. Um, the Moses out of uh, Yemen. It has been, in fact, accused Saudi Arabia has of committing war crimes in Yemen. That did not stop the UN's humanitarian chief from appearing alongside Saudi government officials at a press conference this week to discuss Saudi Arabia's funding of relief operations in Yemen. We bomb them, we help them. A move some observers described, according to Vice News, as bizarre and perhaps unprecedented. The press conference at U.N. headquarters in New York featured Stephen O'Brien, the U.N.'s Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, Saudi Arabia's ambassador to the U.N., and the general supervisor of the Saudi agency overseeing humanitarian aid for Yemen. It was a sparsely attended briefing, announced less than an hour beforehand. 
Reporters were presented with a 79-page pamphlet that extolled the work of the King Salman Humanitarian Aid and Relief Center. It was set up way back in the earlier part of this year. The uh, UN official O'Brien welcomed Abdullah al-Rabiya, the official responsible for overseeing humanitarian aid in Yemen, and said the UN had been able to establish a strong sense of relationship and partnership with the King Salman Center. On April 17th, more than three weeks into the Saudi-led bombing campaign that has targeted Yemen's Houthi rebels and their allies, Saudi Arabia announced it would contribute $274 million in aid to the country. The aid, which met an emergency appeal made by the U.N., was delayed for months, however, as Saudi officials insisted on obtaining memoranda of understanding with individual U.N. agencies. The Saudis insisted on certain stipulations, including that the aid not be distributed in areas controlled by the Houthi rebels. That's humanitarian aid with a twist. Several U.N. officials expressed frustration with the Saudi government when speaking to Vice News. It was only in September that Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, reached agreements to distribute the bulk of the promised cash among U.N. agencies. During the months that followed the aid pledge, the Saudi-led military coalition was implicated in a number of bombings that left hundreds of civilians dead. In an April, uh, sorry, in an August briefing at the Security Council, O'Brien, the UN official himself, said the coalition violated international law when they bombed a major port along the Red Sea coast. Since March, the Saudis have maintained an effective blockade of Yemen, where some 21 million residents are in need of humanitarian assistance. O'Brien seemed uneasy at times during the news conference. He defended the UN's decision to accept the desperately needed support from Riyadh. Like the majority of current UN humanitarian appeals, the organization's billion-and-a-half-dollar aid request for Yemen is still less than half-funded. They're, they're like the L.A. Times. Get money from Eli Broad, why don't you? The first and best solution to humanitarian need is for the fighting to stop, O'Brien told reporters. He uh, was asked if he considered the Saudis offering humanitarian assistance in a country where they're bombing to be a new type of aid arrangement. Quote, the fact that in this ever more complex world where we have more conflicts within states than rather than between states, these kinds of situations are not going to be unusual or rare, so I don't think it's appropriate to regard it as a new form. Unquote. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a diplomat talking. At least 2,355 civilians have been killed in Yemen since March. Our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. And now... We've got the ultra-modern knack Of getting oil from the deepest crack So give the boys just a bit of slack And say a hearty what? What the frack? A sudden spike of earthquakes in southern Kansas now. Now it's Kansas is raising eyebrows in the region where there have been more earthquakes in the past two weeks than there were between 1990 and 2013. Why, that's 23 years. I did that just right as I was speaking to you. Yes, I wasn't any good in math. As of Monday, there have been 52 earthquakes in Kansas since October 15th, most of a magnitude around 2 or 3. There were just 19 earthquakes in the state between 1990 and 2010. There were no recorded earthquakes in 2011 or 2012. Okay, so be grateful for that, Kansas. 
In a typical year prior to 2013, we might have picked up one, two, three earthquakes, says the interim director of the Kansas Geological Survey at the University of Kansas. Obviously, we've undone, outdone that dramatically, unquote. All of the state's earthquakes over the past stretch occurred in just two southern counties that run along the border of Kansas. Any guesses? Oklahoma. Raising questions about the quakes' ties to fracking in the region. Since there have been all those uh, quakes in Oklahoma tied to fracking. And Kansas is right across the border. But, you know, the industry disputes the connection. Fracking has been going on in Kansas since the 1940s, but the recent innovation of horizontal drilling, mm, instead of vertical, requires more water. As you may know by now, the wastewater is injected into disposal wells, not exactly where it came from, said an official. He added the earthquakes were probably being caused by the wastewater disposal wells, not the act of drilling itself. Okay, then, if they just dumped the water wherever they liked, we wouldn't have the quakes. You see? It's the damn regulators. In Kansas, you produce a lot more salt water than you do oil and gas in the oil and gas production process, said the official. We're dealing with much greater volumes of water than 10 years ago. Thank goodness we all have water to spare, water to spare, water to spare. Open up the window, see the AC, free from the grips of the humidity time to tree your shorts for jeans it's autumn in New Orleans just like the springtime without the bugs breezes is gentle as grandma's hug Streets start filling up with tourists and teens. Autumn in New Orleans. Saints back playing, magnolia swaying, shaking off the last spring's beans. Party time beginning. Saints keep winning Who knows where this thing leads Second line starts snaking Up and down the street Glove hands clapping To the dancing feet Friday night fish fries White limousines All the men knew
don't fall in Duck blinds call in Dogmen make it swift return Ghosts to a romancing Idiots all dancing Soon enough to find fire's burn So goodbye to grilling And those is willing Fix up a mess of red beans Welcome back to autumn To old new Orleans Old new Orleans This is Le Show from the home of the homeless this week. Not New Orleans. Well, here come those Santa Ana winds again. I know that. Ladies and gentlemen, you saw in the news this week that the uh, U.S. had a runaway blimp problem for a while till they shot holes in it to be able to retrieve it. Supposed supposed to not be a, a problem for that blimp. It is the blimp talked about in a uh, Los Angeles Los Angeles Times, they're still doing that, a uh, report that uh, was shared on this broadcast last week or the week before. A helium-filled Army aerostat intended to help NORAD detect, detect threats in the East Coast airspace. State police did use shotguns to deflate the aerostat near Muncie, Pennsylvania. The blimp-like craft <laughs> looks like a blimp, but it's white. So it's blimp-like. was put aloft last December as part of a three-year experiment to see whether aerostats could be integrated into NORAD's air defense system. Aerostat means, I guess, I've, I've deduced from the uh, context, that it's tethered. So it's aloft, but it's tethered. So it don't, don't float around. Except this one did. So it was more aero than stat. As part of the Joint Land Attack Cruise Missile Defense Elevated Netted Sensor System, or JLENS. They just throw out the words that don't lend themselves to the acronym. Joint Land Attack Cruise Missile Defense Elevated Netted Sensor System. And that's JLENS, because they throw out the A, the C, the M, the D, and the D. Because what can you do with those? Even before it came loose from its mooring, the uh, $2.7 billion program for tethered blimps, ladies and gentlemen, had come into in for criticism following that Los Angeles Times report. The blimps reportedly had failed to provide continuous surveillance for 30 days at a time as they were intended to do. Oh, take a day off, blimpy. And problems with the fire control radar had kept one of the aerostats grounded for most of the year. The uh, report described J-Lens, appropriately enough for Halloween season, as a zombie program impossible to kill. The program's future might be up in the air now that the blimp has been grounded. (laughs) That's not my writing. The ship's tail section section was removed Thursday afternoon. The larger hull was still being deflated, according to the Associated Press. The Army is investigating because the Army knows blimps. 
And now, ladies and gentlemen, it didn't make a lot of news uh, when it came out last week because I guess the whole drone strike kill list thing is um, just, what, not sexy? Not interesting? Or maybe it's too interesting. It's been widely reported. This was a report that uh, came through the uh, website The Intercept, which uh, was founded by the founder of PayPal. And there have been some questions about him, but this is undeniably uh, an interesting piece of reporting, to say the least. They start out with... uh, the observation has been widely reported that President Obama directly approves high-value targets for inclusion on the kill list, that is to say, people who are targeted for killing by drones. But a secret Defense Department study by its Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance Task Force provides new insight into the kill chain. U.S. intelligence personnel collect information on potential targets drawn from government watch lists and the work of intelligence agencies. At the time of the study, when someone was destined for the kill list, intelligence analysts created a portrait of the suspect and the threat that person posed, putting it together in a condensed format known as the baseball card. Well, how about that? The information was then bundled with additional information and packaged in a target information folder to be staffed up to higher echelons for action. It took 58 days on average for president to sign off on a target. According to one slide, at that point, U.S. forces had 60 days to carry out the strike. Otherwise... I guess the target got stale. The system for creating baseball cards and targeting packages, according to the source who whistle blew this stuff to the intercept, depends largely on intelligence intercepts and a multered layer system of fallible human interpretation. It isn't a surefire method, says the source. You're relying on the fact you have all these very powerful machines capable of collecting extraordinary amounts of data and information, which can lead personnel involved in targeted killings to believe they have, quote, Godlike powers, unquote. In undeclared war zones, the U.S. military has become reliant on signals intelligence, SIGINT, to identify and ultimately hunt down and kill people. The documents acknowledge that using metadata from phones and computers as well as communications intercepts is an inferior method of finding and finishing targeted people. They described SIGINT capabilities in these unconventional battlefields as poor and limited, yet such collection, much of it provided by foreign partners, accounted for more than half the intelligence used to track potential kills in Yemen and Somalia. Well, what were we supposed to do? Have people on the ground, places like that? What's, you, you had that food? The ISR study characterized these failings as a technical hindrance to efficient operations, admitting the fact that faulty intelligence has led to the killing of innocent people including U.S. citizens, in drone strikes. The source underscored the unreliability of metadata, most often from phone and computer communications intercepts. These sources of information are identified by so-called selectors, such as a phone number or email address. They're the primary tools used by the military to find, fix, and finish its targets. It requires an enormous amount of faith in the technology, says the source. There are countless instances where I've come across intelligence that was faulty, he said. This is a primary factor in the killing of civilians. He adds, it's stunning the number of instances when selectors are misattributed to certain people. After uh, a long time, you wind up realizing it was his mother's phone the whole time. Unquote. Within the special ops community, the source said the internal view of people being hunted by the U.S. for possible death by drone is, quote, they have no rights, they have no humanity, no dignity, 
They're just a selector to an analyst. This practice leads to dehumanizing the people before you've even encountered the moral question of, is this a legitimate kill or not? Unquote the source. By the ISR, studies own admission killing suspected terrorists, even if they're legitimate targets, further hampers intelligence gathering. Kill operations, says the study bluntly, significantly reduce the intelligence available, unquote. The White House and Pentagon boast the targeted killing program is precise and that civilian deaths are minimal. However, documents detailing a special ops campaign in northeastern Afghanistan, Operation Haymaker, show that between January 2012 and February 2013, U.S. special ops airstrikes killed more than 200 people. Only 35 were the intended targets. Oops, we're so sorry. Here's 30 bucks. During one five-month period of the operation, according to the documents, nearly 90% of the people killed in airstrikes were not the intended targets. In Somalia and Yemen, where the U.S. has much more limited intelligence capability to inform and confirm that the people killed are the intended targets, the equivalent ratios may well be worse. Anyone caught in the vicinity is guilty by association, said the source. When a drone strike kills more than one person, there's no guarantee those persons deserve their fate. It's a phenomenal gamble, unquote. The documents show the military designated people it kills in targeted strikes as EKIA. I love their furniture. Enemy killed in action, even if they were not the intended targets of the strike, unless evidence posthumously emerged to prove the males killed were not terrorists or unlawful enemy combatants. EKIA remained their designation, according to the source. That process, he said, quote, is insane, unquote. The, stru- the source described U.S. official government statements minimizing the number of civil- civilian casualties inflicted by drone strikes as, quote, exaggerating at best, if not outright lies, unquote. The large number of reported strikes may also be a re- reflection of signature strikes in Yemen. These are strikes where there aren't specific named targets, but just groupings of people, usually males of military age, gathering in an area. Get out of here! A September 2012 strike in Yemen, extensively investigated by Human Rights Watch and the Open Society Foundations, killed 12 civilians, including three children and a pregnant woman. No alleged militants died in the strike, and the Yemeni government paid restitution for it. The United States never offered an explanation. It uh, reminds me of the day... When this first became public knowledge, the president's kill list, the baseball cards, it was the same day that the president accorded and awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom to Bob Dylan. Oh, you listers of Q, you think you're so smart. You list with your head You kill with your heart It's all remote control No blood on your heads But they all know your name In those far distant lands You've got baseball cards From which you can choose 
folks who will win from those who will lose the men who are young which you'd be if you could are okay to snuff they're probably up to no good Your planes are all drones No pilots at risk Nobody to question Nobody to frisk It's all so precise That's the way that it's played And when you kill children Mistakes they were made Now you're drawing the bullseyes In a war without end Detainees are forever So you don't apprehend Oh, you double down You're so smart You list with your head You kill with your heart It's all remote control No blood on your hands But they all know our names In those far distant lands
Now, ladies and gentlemen, news from outside the bubble. Well, it seems to have escaped the American media that the last person with uh, UK residency privileges has been released from Guantanamo Bay. He was uh, returned to the UK this week after 14 years in captivity, no charge, no trial, because freedom. He is suffering, his lawyers now say, from post-traumatic stress disorder. That's got to be a big surprise. He uh, is undergoing medical tests since his return, according to the British Press Association. And um, one of his lawyers told the BBC's Today program, Hey, how much are you getting paid to do that, John? Quote, he suffers from a number of conditions, both physical and psychological, including post-traumatic stress disorder, on the severe end of the PTSD spectrum. Unquote. The former hostage, Terry Waite, who was held captive for more than 1,700 days after going to Beirut in 1987 to negotiate the release of several hostages there, urged Amer to withdraw from public view for a while, he told BBC. Quote, he has suffered a grave injustice, whatever the background, to keep someone for 13 years without charge is really beyond the pale, unquote, Terry Waite. Waite said Amer needed to be careful about making any public statements in the near future because he may say things he later regrets. Hey, man, that's called Twitter. Amir is expected to bring legal proceedings against the British government over its alleged complicity in his mistreatment at both Bagram, the uh, secret prison at the Air Force Base the U.S. ran in Afghanistan, and later at Gitmo. A source said, a source said quote, proceedings were initiated some years ago on his behalf. They could not be followed until his return to the U.K. They will now, now undoubtedly be progressed, unquote, somebody who uses progress as a verb. By the way, Amer was cleared for release from Gitmo eight years ago. But, you know, these things take time. News from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now the apologies of the week. How sorry a week was it? Well, Deadline Louisville, Kentucky, the University of Louisville. Yes, I said Louisville and then I said Louisville. You get your choice. Apologized Thursday after President James Ramsey faced criticism for a photo in which he and other university staffers were depicted at a Halloween party wearing stereotypical Mexican costumes with sombreros, which a university spokesman said some had, quote, considered offensive or ofensivo. The photo showing Ramsey in a multicolored poncho and sobrero alongside more than a dozen others with some wearing fake mustaches was published online by the Courier-Journal, the local newspaper in Louisville, as part of a photo gallery about a uh, Highlands neighborhood mansion used by Ramsey for university events. Quote, we made a mistake and are very sorry, said Chief of Staff to the President, Kathleen Smith, which noted her office had met with the top official of the Office of Hispanic and Latino initiatives and shared, quote, our deep regret for the hurt this experience has caused. University spokesman John Carman said the photo was taken during a party for Ramsey and some staff at the home. He said the university started getting complaints the very next day. The editor of the student newspaper wrote that, quote, if a fraternity threw a party with a Mexican theme and pictures of them in these outfits got out, they would be in huge trouble. 
Carmen said he wasn't certain what university policy would be in such instances, said, saying it would be likely dealt with on a case-by-case basis. The university officials released an apology Thursday evening in the wake of increasing social, criti- social media criticism, addressing it to Hispanic, Latino faculty, staff, and students. Quote, we commit to a series of campus conversations with students, faculty, staff, alumni, and community members to further focus on diversity and racial equality issues underpinning the pluralistic society we all support. This event shows we have much more to learn about our community. Unquote. The University of Louisville's director of the Office of Hispanic and Latino Initiatives said she hoped the incident would be a learning experience. We're human beings, she said. We're not costumes, unquote. Next time, dress as hedgehogs. The Los Angeles Clippers guard Austin Rivers, son of the coach and general manager. That's just, that's just a happy accident. He was fined $25,000 by the National Basketball Association this week, a day after throwing a seat cushion into the stands at Sacramento. He says he apologized to the fan who was hit by it. The NBA confirmed the cushion hit a woman in the second row at Sleep Train Arena. (laughs) But wake up! It's basketball at Sleep Train Arena. She experienced discomfort in her eyes. Quote, the pillow was light and it just flew into the air backwards. I didn't really look when it went into the crowd, said Rivers. Not describing his shot. Describing the pillow. El Paso, Texas, an El Paso Independent School District parent was shocked by what she says a Chapin High School teacher drew on her son's class assignment. I said, there's no way the teacher really did this, said parent Sandra Green. According to Green and the district, it did happen. Language arts teacher Kim Juzdowski drew a penis across the student's assignment because he wasn't doing anything in class. You know, deeing around. It was true. Judovsky, Juzdowski apologized through email, writing, I'm sorry, your son took offense. I totally understand if you would like to meet with an administrator and have him moved, i.e. the son, not the administrator. Can't do that. Deadline, Decatur, Alabama, teachers being investigated by his school district after a photo of him and his wife dressed up as Kanye West and Kim Kardashian for a Halloween party surfaced online. Heath Morrow and his wife Shannon, yeah, Shannon and Heath, what's your problem? Posed for the photo with Heath as Kanye West that Shannon initially posted to Facebook. Ha ha, some people thought Heath was really a black man, she wrote. The photo of the fifth grade teacher eventually made its way onto Reddit. According to BuzzFeed, he later apologized for wearing the costume. I would like to first apologize for my error in judgment. My intentions were not malicious or directed toward any certain group of people. I would like to say that everyone who knows my character and knows my heart knows I have never seen color in my life. I wasn't raised or taught that way and do not raise my children that way. I see people for who they... And he goes on. At great length, the superintendent of the district read the apology at a Monday conference but refused to comment on Heath's status as a teacher or on Kanye's status as an artist. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, a tabloid newspaper this week reported that Rupert Murdoch 
I is now dating Jerry Hall, former uh, girlfriend of Mick Jagger, of Sir Mick, Sir Mick Jagger. It's not Sir Rupert Murdoch yet, but it's Sir Mick Jagger. Isn't that ironic? I can't get no satisfaction, he sings to her. Or maybe he sings, under my thumb. And on a related matter, a non-tabloid newspaper reports this week that the Miss Universe and Miss USA pageants, now divested by Donald Trump after NBC decided not to broadcast them anymore because of Trump's controversial public statements. The uh, two pageants have been picked up by Fox TV, owned by Rupert Murdoch. You you figure out the connection. I'm busy saying, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR Worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world via the American Forces Network up and down the East Coast and North, North America by the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet 7.490 megahertz shortwave on the Mighty 104 in Berlin, around the world via the Internet in two different locations, live and archived whenever you want it, harryshare.com and kcsn.org, available for your smartphone through stitcher.com, available on Soho Radio in London every Monday morning, and available as a free podcast at Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, and WWNO.org. And it would be just like taking Jerry Hall to the Miss Universe pageant, if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much, huh? At the Pitless Show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, in exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWN in New Orleans. The email address for this program and playlist of the music heard here on at harryshare.com. And you can get your Cars I Talk t-shirts there as well. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans. Flagship station for the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless. <laughs>